evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The former top leader of the Proud Boys and four other members have been charged with seditious conspiracy. They're accused of participating in a coordinated attack on the U.S. Capitol. The White House today says the planned deployment of U.S. solar modules is in jeopardy because of short supply. To make up for the shortfall, the Biden administration is waiving tariffs on solar products from Southeast Asia for at least two years, regardless of whether they're made with forced labor. We have the details. A newly created Latino media company just landed a $60 million deal for 18 Spanish radio stations. Some critics say the new company will dilute conservative content. A Texas lawmaker vows to introduce legislation banning drag shows in the presence of children. This after a drag show for kids was held in a gay bar over the weekend, sparking outrage. Young children gave money to the scantily clad male dancers and were encouraged to participate. At least 50 people were killed when gunmen opened fire on people attending a church service in Nigeria. One churchgoer shares the story of how he was shot in the leg while trying to save his kids. The former top leader of the Proud Boys and four other members have been charged with seditious conspiracy. Federal prosecutors say they were part of a coordinated attack on the U.S. Capitol, and the purpose of the attack was to stop Congress from certifying the 2020 presidential election results. Authorities say members of the Proud Boys dismantled metal barricades set up to protect the Capitol, then allegedly directed and led members of the crowd into the building. They are scheduled to stand trial in August in Washington, D.C.'s federal court. More than 35 people who have been charged in the Capitol breach have been identified as Proud Boys leaders, members or associates. And President Biden today signed a declaration of emergency so that the U.S. can import more solar panels from Southeast Asian countries. This as there is an ongoing investigation into whether the solar products from these countries are made with forced labor in China. If so, that means the White House is ignoring its own anti-forced labor policies. NTD's Melina Weiskup has the details. The White House today admits that the U.S. does not have enough solar panels to push forward with its clean energy transition, revealing in a Monday proclamation that, quote, roughly half of the domestic deployment of solar modules that had been anticipated over the next year is currently in jeopardy as a result of insufficient supply. Now President Biden is pausing tariffs on solar products from Southeast Asian countries, including Cambodia, Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam. The tariff freeze will last at least two years, and the White House says this is only temporary while the U.S. ramps up its own solar and wind production. How long do you think it would take for us to be self-sufficient? I don't think we ever could be self-sufficient. The fact of the matter is that you need to mine rare earth elements, which is about the most destructive environmental practice in the world, and the American people will not put up with that in the United States. If we are going to force the American economy to operate on solar power and wind power, we will be largely dependent on China. There's no way around that, and that's very dangerous for the United States and the rest of the world. And Oxen Solar, a small company that prides itself on producing panels in the U.S., claims that these Southeast Asian countries are using Chinese parts made with forced labor while trying to hide their origin. There is also the fact that in China you have slave labor, you have cheap labor. There's no way to get around that. Other nations have the same issue. And right now these countries are being investigated by the Commerce Department for potentially funneling Chinese forced labor products to make solar panels. The White House today was asked if waiving these tariffs would undermine the investigation, a question which did not get a direct answer. Can you just explain the administration thinking and how this two-year pause and guarantee doesn't undermine an investigation into those tariffs? Yeah, so the president is invoking an authority under the Tariff Act. Uh, that authorizes him to suspend certain important duties to address an emergency. The Commerce Department, as of today, says they're still investigating the possibility of Chinese-made forced labor products being funneled through these Southeast Asian countries, and that whatever conclusion the department reaches when the investigation is over will apply once this short-term emergency period is over. 
And while this investigation is still ongoing, this latest announcement from the Commerce Department essentially means that if it is found that products from the Xinjiang region in China are making their way through those Southeast Asian countries and then being imported here into the U.S., that would effectively mean that we are not enforcing our own anti-forced labor policies. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. Two Latina activists have raised $80 million to launch a new Hispanic media company. It's reportedly one of the largest sums raised for a Latina-owned startup in the U.S. And their first purchase is 18 Hispanic radio stations at a cost of $60 million. NTD's Arlene Richards has the story. The world's leader in Spanish-language media, Televisa Univision, just made a $60 million sale to a brand-new startup media company called Latino Media Network. The sale? 18 Spanish-language radio stations across 10 markets, including Los Angeles, New York, and Miami. The new company is backed by heavy hitters such as businessman George Soros, whose financial company is leading the investment, and others like Hollywood actress Eva Longoria. The company's owners, Stephanie Valencia and Jess Morales Raquetto, both worked for President Barack Obama's election campaign. Valencia also worked for the Obama administration, and Raquetto campaigned for Hillary Clinton. Raquetto told Axios that the company is serious about free speech and free expression rather than having a political bent. But Rich Valdez, a conservative radio and podcast host, says he thinks the purchase is about politics. They, they bought a combination of different stations in different formats, one of which is a, a conservative talk radio station in Spanish that's focused on the anti-communist movement for a really long time. So I would say they in particular bought that station. What they would say is to manage misinformation, but really is to be the purveyors of misinformation. Valencia said in the press release, through the unique combination of creative content and new and existing media platforms to serve our community, we can embrace cultural pride and collectively empower Latinos. And Valdez thinks talk radio tends to be more successful when it's conservative. Radio is not innate in a way where just because they buy it, the listeners are going to listen anyway. That's not necessarily the case. So I think that that station in particular, they're buying simply to see it be destroyed. They're going to dilute the content. They're going to dilute the messaging strategy that's always been there, and they're going to probably uh, infiltrate it with a lot of uh, leftist ideas, pro-collectivist uh, ideas, the type of stuff that we see in the mainstream media in, in the English side. And that's ultimately going to cost them that station. NTD reached out to Latino Media Network for comment, but did not hear back before airtime. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. A large caravan made up of at least 6,000 migrants is heading toward the U.S.-Mexico border. They started from southern Mexico earlier today, and it could be one of the largest migrant caravans in the region in recent years. Many of the migrants are from Venezuela. And now to protections for kids in the U.S. Calls are growing to outlaw drag shows for children. This after a drag performance for kids was held at a gay nightclub in Texas on Saturday. The event is part of a growing trend for, of drag events promoted to children. NTD's Grace Coulter has the details. A drag show for children held at a gay club in Dallas, Texas over the weekend is drawing outrage and calls for action. The show, titled Drag the Kids to Pride, featured men scantily dressed in drag, dancing provocatively beneath a neon sign with an obscene message. So not a single one of them will talk to us. Independent journalist Taylor Hansen attended the event. He took videos showing young children tipping the dancers and even being invited on stage to participate in the show. If you think you can do it, if you think you can walk the runway with the girl, who wants to be a diva for the day? Children were each paired with a drag queen and told to walk the runway and pose. After seeing videos of the performance posted online, Texas State Representative Brian Slayton announced that he plans to file a bill to ban drag shows in the presence of children. Slayton wrote in a press release Monday, the events of this past weekend were horrifying and show a disturbing trend in which perverted adults are obsessed with sexualizing young children. He added that lawmakers have a responsibility to protect the children in their state from sexualization. 
And Slayton isn't the only one to propose such legislation in response to the drag show. Michigan gubernatorial candidate Tudor Dixon, a Republican, wrote on Twitter, As governor, I will sign a bill that creates severe criminal penalties for adults who involve children in drag shows. This type of behavior is criminal child sexually abusive activity. Several prominent conservatives over the weekend also called for making it illegal to host or participate in drag shows for children. The show also faced pushback on the day of the event. Dozens of protesters gathered outside the Mr. Mr. Gay Club. The protest was organized by a group called Protect Texas Kids. Grace Coulter, NTD News. And we'll keep you updated on further developments in that news. And in Nigeria, armed gunmen opened fire on people attending a church service yesterday, killing at least 50 people. One churchgoer explained how he was shot in the leg while trying to save his kids. Please note that some of the following footage may be disturbing to some viewers. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. Spilled blood covered the floors of St. Francis Catholic Church in Owo and southwestern Nigeria. Church officials and witnesses said gunmen opened fire on worshipers who were inside the church, while other gunmen waited outside to kill those who tried to flee. Explosive devices were also detonated at the church during the attack. Although state police could not confirm the exact number of casualties, at least 50 people were killed, including many children. That's according to a Nigerian lawmaker who also said the gunmen drove in on motorcycles. Some churchgoers who were able to escape shared their stories. I begin to scrape. So I get to the back of a toilet. It's from that place I see wood in the wall. So I put one of my legs there, then I fall over to the other side. That is how I escape. Another gentleman quickly hid his children under the seats. So many people. But unfortunately, because of the kids, my leg was unable to enter the the pew in the church. That was where they shot my leg. Neither the police nor state authorities have blamed any group. Jason Perry, NTD News. Our hearts go out to the victims of that tragedy and their families. And back in the U.S., the Washington Post has admitted that one of its columnists, Taylor Lawrence, made false statements in a recent article. Lawrence said she reached out to a subject before publication when in fact she didn't. And this isn't her only controversy in recent months. Here are the details. The Washington Post published an analysis by Taylor Lorenz on June 2nd titled, Who Won the Depp Heard Trial? Content Creators That Went All In. In it, Lorenz claimed that YouTubers including That Umbrella Guy made big profits by covering the trial between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. She said the YouTubers took advantage of traditional media outlets' lack of coverage of the trial and that she reached out to That Umbrella Guy for comment. The Washington Post later admitted in an editor's note that That Umbrella Guy was not in fact contacted before publication. The note says, after the story was published, the Post queried That Umbrella Guy for the first time. During that process, the Post removed the incorrect statement from the story, but did not note its removal, a violation of our corrections policy. That Umbrella Guy said in a statement on June 3rd that Taylor Lorenz wrote an obvious smear piece, conflating debt support with financial gain. She lied about contacting me in the Washington Post and tried covering this up after I called it out publicly. Media outlets typically require their journalists to ask subjects of articles for comment, especially if they are being reported on in a negative way. This is not the first time Lorenz has been in the news for her reporting. In April, she doxed the creator of Libs of TikTok by including a hyperlink to the person's purported address in her article. NTD found the hyperlink, but Lorenz has denied doxing the creator. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. New complaints filed with the Department of Education allege that five medical schools in the U.S. are violating federal law by offering scholarships to certain races to the exclusion of others. To dig into this issue, I spoke with a well-known political commentator and show host, Larry Elder. Larry, welcome to our show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Steph. I appreciate it. 
Some medical schools are designating scholarships to certain types of students. They say they want historically underrepresented groups to have a better chance at education. Do you think this is the right way to uplift these underrepresented groups? Let's see. Uh, you have a loved one who has a heart attack. You wheel the loved one into the uh, operating operation, operating room, and you see, quote, a person of color there. Do you want to know that the person of color got into medical school because he or she was a person of color, or whether that person of color got into medical school because he or she is competent? Uh, it's absolutely, totally ridiculous. Everybody should meet the same standard. And the lower standards suggest a very racist attitude that you believe certain people of color cannot meet the standard. George W. Bush had an expression for that. He called it the soft bigotry of low expectations. Furthermore, it discriminates against other people. It's wrong. It's also very likely illegal, a violation of the Civil Rights Acts and also a violation of the 14th Amendment. Aside from that, I have no problem with it. And you've said before um, that affirmative action is in some ways racist. Could you explain that a little more? Well, what you're really saying is you don't believe that certain people can meet a standard. You don't believe certain people uh, are competent. I, I remember years ago there was the dream team, the uh, the basketball team that competed in the Olympics that had people like Michael Jordan on it and Charles Barkley, and they, uh, Steph, destroyed the foreign field. They they beat these teams, uh, the best ones, by 30, 40, 50 points. No longer is that the case. Now the best foreign teams are very competitive, and until and unless we send the best players, we stand a risk of losing. And the hoop wasn't lowered in order for the foreign teams uh, to be able to compete. They got better. They raised their game. We ought to be encouraging uh, people of color, and by that we're talking about Hispanics and, and blacks, because uh, Asian Americans do better on the standardized test. Uh, than do white students, so suddenly they're no, they're no longer people of color. What we're really saying is that black and brown students simply can't compete. They're too stupid, which, in my opinion, is very insulting. We ought to be talking about why K through 12 is so bad uh, in urban America, uh, and therefore not producing people that can that can do well and get into the to the more competitive colleges. There are 13 public high schools in Baltimore, 13 in the inner city, where zero percent of kids are math proficient. And there are another six where only 1% are. That's almost half the public high schools in Baltimore. And you see, you see the similar kind of thing in Detroit, Cleveland, and other big cities. We ought to be talking about what's going on uh, with these schools and what's going on at home, uh, that you're not producing kids who go to school ready to learn, uh, ready to be disciplined, so they can meet the standard that everybody else meets. And what do you think is going on there? What's going on is the real inequality, Steph, the real imbalance is the huge number of kids who enter the world without a father married to the mother. Forty percent of, of all kids in America enter the world without a father married to the mother. Fifty percent of Hispanic kids, 70 percent of black kids do, up from 25 percent back in 1965. And forget about elder, Barack Obama once said, a kid raised without a father is five times more likely to be poor and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to end up in jail. There's a direct correlation between the lack of fathers in the home uh, and, these, and these poor academic outcomes. We ought to be talking about why it is that the welfare state has incentivized women to marry the government and has incentivized men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility. And we rarely have that conversation. And you're now hosting The Larry Elder Show four days a week. Could you talk about, to us about what you'll cover on the show? Well, current events. Uh, it's it's a, a Monday through Thursday show from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific time. And whatever's going on, I'm going to talk today about this 500-page uh, reparations report that you and I have been talking about. I'm also going to talk about the soft on crime DAs out here in California, one of whom is in San Francisco and is facing a recall effort and is very likely going to be recalled. So whatever is going on in the news, I'm going to be talking about the mass shootings. Uh, the one in Buffalo, uh, Joe Biden went there and talked about white supremacy. Uh, but when that black man got behind that SUV and mowed down all those people in Waukesha, Wisconsin, he never went there. And the reason he went, didn't go there is he claimed that it would require too many assets to organize the trip. But somehow, uh, the assets that he needed to organize a trip to Buffalo was not a problem. Thank you so much for coming on, Larry. Steph, I had a good time. Thank you for having me. You know where to find me. <laughs> Absolutely. You can find The Larry Elder Show on Epic Times Epic TV. It airs Monday through Thursday at 2 to 3 p.m. Pacific Time, as Larry said. That's 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to epictimes.com slash epictv. And coming up, overdoses and seizures of drugs are skyrocketing in Oregon. That's after the state decriminalized their possession last year. Oregon officials now admit that the state's drug addiction problem is getting worse. 
And today marks the 78th anniversary of D-Day. This year, thousands of visitors and veterans are back in Normandy, France to pay tribute to the nearly 160,000 troops who landed there to bring freedom. That and more after this short break. Officials in Oregon are admitting that the problem with drug addiction has gotten worse after the state decriminalized drugs in early 2021. Overdoses and seizures of fentanyl, marijuana and opioids have skyrocketed over the past year. Beginning in February 2021, Oregon decriminalized possession of personal amounts of heroin, cocaine, meth and other drugs. Oregon State Police seized 17 times more fentanyl in 2021 compared to the previous year over 480,000 doses. Seizures of marijuana jumped more than 10 times compared to 2020, reaching nearly a million pounds. Oregon Secretary of State Shamia Fagan told a state house committee earlier this month that in many communities in Oregon, we've seen the problem with drug addiction get worse. The new law allocates funds for drug treatment programs for people dealing with addictions. But so far, only around 130 people have entered treatment and just 13% of the budget for treatment has been spent. Today marks the 78th anniversary of the Second World War D-Day landings in France. Thousands died during the seaborne invasion of Normandy's beaches, but it was a turning point in the defeat of Nazi Germany. This morning, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, spoke at a ceremony at the Normandy American Cemetery and Memorial in France. Here at the beaches of Normandy 78 years ago, ordinary people from all walks of life came together to serve the cause of liberty. Early in the morning, on 6 June, as the German defenders on these bluffs looked out to sea, they bore witness to the first plumes of black smoke as 700 Allied ships disembarked 137 Allied soldiers from several different countries that would storm the beaches of Normandy and relentlessly turn back the Nazi tide. It has been almost eight decades since the defeat of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan and fascist Italy. But we are again seeing death and destruction on the European continent. While Kiev may be 2,000 kilometers from here, they too, right now, today, are experiencing the same horrors that the French citizens experienced in World War II at the hands of the Nazi invaders. This year's D-Day anniversary comes after two successive years of the COVID-19 pandemic deterred visitors. Crowds of French and international visitors, including veterans aged in their 90s, are back in Normandy to pay tribute to the nearly 160,000 troops from the U.S., Britain, Canada and elsewhere who landed there to bring freedom. Many felt the celebrations held special meaning this year as war is raging again in Europe since Russia's invasion of Ukraine on February 24th. And back in the U.S., a bipartisan gesture, First Lady Jill Biden unveils a postage stamp honoring one of her predecessors, former First Lady Nancy Reagan. Here's Jill Biden speaking at the White House today. Next month would have been Mrs. Reagan's 101st birthday ending her centennial year. And with this stamp, we are affirming that she made such a difference. Joined by the Postmaster General and Reagan's niece, Jill Biden praised Nancy Reagan for her accomplishments, including the Just Say No anti-drug campaign and advocating for research on Alzheimer's disease. She's the sixth first lady to be on a stamp and her stamp will be officially issued on July 6th. The World Trade Organization will meet later this week to discuss waiving intellectual property rights or patents for COVID-19 vaccines. All 164 member countries need to agree for it to go through. If it does go through, companies in poorer countries will have the legal ability to reproduce big pharmaceutical firms' vaccines. Hypothetically, South African companies could be able to make Pfizer vaccines without being sued or facing legal consequences. The issue is hotly debated. 
The argument for waiving patent and IP rights is it would increase access to vaccines in poorer countries. The counter view is that IP rights and protections are critical to economic development and innovation. And NTD's Don Ma speaks to the policy director of nonprofit group U.S. Inventor to learn more about this. Josh, great to have you. So in your opinion, should we waive IP rights for vaccines? Well, uh, by we, I, I think you're referring to the United States or you may be referring to the WTO. And I, I don't think either one should, should waive IP rights for any, any, any inventions. Why, why do you say that? Well, uh, so IP rights are, are forward-looking. So patents in particular are incentive for researchers and inventors and universities and corporations to invest capital in, in exploring new areas that, that are high risk. And so if you have uh, a property right, which is what a patent is, as a, as, a bat, as a reward for that, then that incentivizes further research and development and, and investment and finding better treatments, better cures, better vaccines. Uh, patents properly implemented are actually a huge incentive to new discoveries and innovations. And so we don't want to take away the incentive for innovations. Yes, yes, I hear what you're saying. Though the WHO argues that, sure, IP rights protect business self-interest, but there's a bigger self-interest. Vaccines can be produced globally and the world can open up and go back to normal. What, what do you think about that? Well, if the world has decided that, and if the WHO and the WTO and, and all the member nations decide that that virus and that pandemic is so uh, devastating that it's worth getting rid of all innovation, we can take the patents around the COVID-19 vaccines and give them to the public. And we won't have to pay any pharmaceutical companies for, that, for those vaccines, the Moderna, the Pfizer, the AstraZeneca. But what about the next virus? What about the next variant? Who's going to invent and come up with cures and treatments and vaccines for the next virus. That's a trade we can make. And so that's our choice. We, um, it's not in corporate interests. It's not in the company's best interest. It's in the world's best interest to have innovation and to have cures and treatments. And so we don't want to throw all that away. It, it's, a, it's, it's not a good trade-off, I don't think. Okay, so correct me if I'm wrong, but you think the argument about public health versus corporate profit this isn't a, a very sound argument. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a false dichotomy. Um, it's both. It should be both. The companies that innovate should be rewarded uh, uh, with, with, with being able to market their commercial solutions. And the, um, the world should be able to benefit from having a, a cure or a vaccine that never existed before. And wouldn't it wouldn't have existed. There's no one investing in it if there's no way to profit from it. Do you think the WTO is tackling the real problem? What do you think the problem is and what's the solution? Yeah, well, so the proposal is a bad proposal because they're, they're proposing to get rid of innovation. So the next virus, the next problem, the next challenge, the proposal is to destroy the incentive for private research and development on new cures and vaccines and treatments. That's the proposal is to get rid of innovation. It is very short-sighted. It says we want it. We want to consume all of our technology that exists in the world in 2022, and we don't want any new technology in 2023 or in the decade ahead. And so we want to keep, we want to keep focused on the long-term and principles of promoting innovation by providing property rights to those who go out and are successful at creating new technologies and cures. Josh Malone, Policy Director at U.S. Inventor, thank you for coming on. Thank you. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, San Francisco police flew across the Pacific to make an arrest in Taiwan. What was the suspected crime that took them all the way across the ocean? Rafael Nadal now has two more Grand Slam titles than anyone else. NTD's Dave Martin breaks down where his res resume stands among the all-time greats. That and more coming up. Los Angeles resident who is suspected of stealing $3 million from a San Francisco woman was arrested after San Francisco authorities tracked him down in Taiwan. 
They made the arrest with the help of the FBI and Taiwan's police. The suspect was extradited back to the U.S. where he is awaiting trial. NTD's Jason Blair has the story. A fugitive burglary suspect who stole almost $3 million from a woman in San Francisco was detained in Taiwan and brought back to the U.S. by the San Francisco Police Department. SFPD, with the help of multiple law enforcement agencies, identified and tracked down L.A. resident Zhang Tianzhu, who fled to Taiwan shortly after the crime. According to the police, Zhang broke into the unidentified victim's home on March 16th. He then allegedly physically restrained the victim with duct tape and threatened her with a knife. The suspect didn't speak but wrote on an electronic tablet demanding money and threatening further harm if she did not cooperate. The victim complied and Zhang was able to transfer almost $3 million into his crypto account. Zhang has been booked on felony burglary, felony kidnapping for robbery and felony terrorist threats. Jason Blair, NTD News, San Francisco. In a turn of events, Elon Musk is threatening to kill the Twitter deal. His legal team is accusing Twitter of hiding data regarding spam and fake accounts. Twitter has given him the testing methodologies it uses to find these fake accounts, but Musk believes their methodologies are inadequate. He wants to do his own analysis, which requires the data on spam and fake accounts. So whether or not Musk will actually own Twitter at this point, who knows? California's cherry season is in full swing. After a two-year hiatus, one city brought back its annual cherry festival celebration with a cherry parade over the weekend. The cherry parade returned to the city of San Leandro, California. The city also celebrated its 150th birthday. Um, I was actually a little girl at when we did the 100th. So when, when they had the 100th celebration in town, it was a citywide complete celebration. And I can still remember sitting on the curb and um, watching the parade go by. The Cherry Parade has been around since 1906. I think there's just something sort of vintage and sort of cutting edge. And um, I think San Leandro is a renaissance city. This year, there were over 50 entries led by the San Leandro High School Marching Band. They were followed by city officials, dance groups, a pet grooming company, Boy Scouts, a meditation group, and more. After this pandemic and so much going on for all of our lives, we're actually having a full year of people coming out again and enjoying each other. This community has a history, a long history of enjoying themselves and loving their, their community. Following the parade were a few events, activities, and food. California's cherry season usually starts mid-May through June. Looks like a lively community event. Well, it's one thing to fly to Hawaii, but what about another mode of transportation? One man is about to go there by kayak alone. NTD's David Lamb spoke to a man that's made that daunting journey his mission. See if you can guess how many days he'll be at sea. In the coming weeks or even days, one man in the Bay Area plans to embark on a journey that he's been waiting for for four years. Now, ever since a test run last summer, he's been preparing ever since. He says this time, all he needs is good weather. Cyril Deramo is French-born and currently lives in the Bay Area. He's made it his mission to solo kayak from San Francisco to Honolulu. Uh, here's what I need to do. I need three days with no wind so I can go off the coast as far as possible. In the summer of 2021, he made his first attempt. He said it was a learning experience to test the waters. Maybe, you know, if I do 30 miles per day, that's 90 miles off the coast. And then I'm far enough so that the wind will not bring me back, okay? But the wind started to pick up and more and more and more. Deramo said it got to the point where it got dangerous for his life. So he and his on-land team called in for a rescue back to shore. But this was surely not the end of his journey. Obviously, it's a struggle. For 70 days, it's going to be hard, hard, hard. But when you make it, you pass your own batteries, and then you're so proud of yourself. You, you Like, wow, it's fantastic. That's why I want to do it again. To give a feeling of how far Hawaii is, flights from San Francisco to both Honolulu and New York take about the same amount of time. 
What is a five and a half hour flight time will take him over two months of paddling. He previously earned the Guinness World Record from Monterey to Hawaii, but with a team of four on a rowing boat. They finished in 39 days. But for solo kayaking, he said there were only six other people that have done it before. Deramo started kayaking at the age of 32. It's the things he sees while out at sea that makes it worth it. There's something about being in the middle of the ocean where you don't see land for two months, where you're connected with nature. Like, imagine if you have to go away for two months, there's no email, there's no internet, there's no phone, there's nothing, just you in the moment. Deramo's game plan is to kayak 30 miles by day and an additional 10 miles by night as the waves push him while he sleeps. So I have to mix the training. So for me, I do yoga, I run, I do biking, kayaking. I mix all the training. Maybe one day I will do two hours of yoga in the morning, two hours of running in the afternoon. Out in the ocean, he may be paddling for 10 to 12 hours a day. So it's really light and it's like this. So right and left, right and left. Deramo has on-land support to communicate with each day for statistics and weather stats. I do this adventure because that's what that's my passion to be on the water and I follow my dreams. And not everybody has to follow like me and but if you want to climb a mountain, if you want to live overseas, you want to learn a language, you have to do it because the energy that you have when you follow your passion makes you do everything. He says he doesn't mind the struggle as his eyes are set on reaching paradise at the end of the journey. Aloha! <laughs> David Lamb, NTD News, California. An impressive feat. And now for more sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Rafael Nadal's straight sets win yesterday at the French Open final mocked his 14th title at Roland Garros and 22nd Grand Slam championship overall, both record-extending achievements. In addition, the greatest of all time debate between the big three of Nadal, Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer now has more clarity. Nadal with two more Grand Slam titles than the other two surely tops the list. Djokovic's resume though is right behind given that he's the all-time leader in weeks ranked at number one and has a winning record against the other two. Federer meanwhile was the first to 20 major titles and was previously the all-time leader in weeks ranked at the top. He also has a losing record against the other two. At age 40 and out since last summer's Wimbledon with an injury, his resume may be complete. Lost in all this for Nadal is the fact that with his Australian Open title win in January, he's now halfway to completing the calendar year Grand Slam, something no one has done on the men's side since Rod Laver in 1969. On the ice tonight, the Avalanche look to finish off a sweep of the Oilers in Edmonton. Should they win, they would advance their first Stanley Cup Finals since 2001. Colorado has outscored Edmonton 16-8 in the first three games, but the Avalanche will be without Nazim Kadri for the remainder of the series. The center was knocked into the boards in Game 3 by Oilers forward Evander Kane. Kane was given a major penalty for boarding and has been suspended for tonight's game. Elsewhere in the league, Boston's Patrice Bergeron was awarded the league's Selkie Trophy as the best defensive forward. For Bergeron, this marks the fifth time he's won the award, breaking a tie for the most ever with Bob Gainey, formerly of the Montreal Canadiens. The 36-year-old has been a finalist 11 straight seasons, also a record, but hadn't won since 2017. And in sports memorabilia, Wayne Gretzky's final jersey with the Edmonton Oilers sold for more than $1.4 million Sunday, the most ever for a hockey jersey. The jersey was last worn by the Great One in Game 4 of the 1988 Stanley Cup Finals against Boston and still has the champagne stains on it. The Oilers swept the Bruins that year, but not without some drama. Game 4 was played at the Boston Garden, but the electricity went out during the second period with the score tied at 3. The game was then replayed from the start two days later and the Oilers won 6-3 to clinch the cup. Finally, on the diamond, the Tampa Bay Rays wore rainbow patches to celebrate Gay Pride Saturday. That is, except for five players who declined for religious reasons. Relief pitcher Jason Adams spoke for the five, saying, what we want them to know is that all are welcome and loved here. He went on to say, it's just a lifestyle that maybe not that they look down on anybody or think differently. It's just that maybe we don't want to encourage it if we believe in Jesus, 
who's encouraged us to live a lifestyle that would abstain from that behavior, just like Jesus encourages me as a heterosexual male to abstain from sex outside the confines of marriage. The Rays lost the game 3-2 to the White Sox. They currently sit in third place in the AL East. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, Top Gun Maverick is the latest example of Hollywood staying clear of the Chinese market while still making a profit. What's at stake? And British Prime Minister Boris Johnson narrowly survives a vote of no confidence. Members of his party voted to keep him in office. We'll have the details for you in just a moment here on NTD News. every country communism gains power, authoritarianism and death followed in its wake. Communism promises a world without suffering, and yet, in its execution, does the exact opposite. Following Lenin's death, Stalin's 29-year reign killed an estimated 60 to 66 million people. More famines and purges would occur. The very peasants that communism was supposed to benefit instead starved to death under its rule. The party dictates what is right and wrong. Mao ended up killing between 50 million and 70 million people. As an investigative journalist, I want to understand why. Next, let's take a moment to look toward Hollywood. Top Gun Maverick crushed box office numbers for the second weekend in a row. And now attention is on how China's market had little to do with that success. We sat down with Chris Fenton, author of Feeding the Dragon, Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA and American Business, to find out more. So lately, big in the headlines is Top Gun and the success it's having, including not being in the China market. So how significant is that? And I think if you if you backtrack and just look at what the movie is about, which is about American exceptionalism and sort of this uh, military that is world class, best in the world, and sort of the policemen of the world in a lot of ways, you could see that just the narrative of it, the thematics of it, might not be exactly palatable for the Chinese Communist Party to begin with. So I think there was always an idea that it might not get into that market, even though it's a big franchise and has the possibility of generating huge box office. So that was when Paramount made a very good decision if they're thinking about business in China and they brought in Tencent as a financier. But when Tencent actually saw a cut of the movie and saw the trailer for that movie, they saw the Taiwanese flag on the actual jacket, the flight jacket of Tom Cruise's character, and saw the Japanese flag there, too. And they felt like that was a little bit too sensitive in order to try to get that movie approved by censors in China. So they requested Paramount to take it off. Now, Paramount took it off for the trailer, um, but a lot of people noticed it being taken off for the trailer. So it created a geopolitical controversy around the world and particularly in the United States. And I think ultimately Tom Cruise and the filmmakers involved and the studio Paramount said enough is enough. Um, this movie doesn't stand a great chance of getting in the market, number one. Number two is a lot of the movies from Hollywood that had been getting into the market hadn't been making all that much. And number three is, hey, we're American. We should protect free speech rights and the freedom of creativity rights of our filmmakers and to edit something like that for the world because China is demanding it just doesn't seem right. So they put those flags back in. And of course, now China's not happy about it. But I would say the rest of the world is pretty happy about it to the tune of $300 million worldwide. And that doesn't include a single dollar coming from China. But what do you see kind of changing besides the American theme? Was maybe COVID playing in? Would there be even a profit from China? Well, I think if you look at the returns of a lot of Hollywood movies five years ago versus the returns of movies during COVID and during that post-COVID period when theaters were back open sort of last summer, 
the the returns were nowhere near what they used to be. So that risk reward calculus of of dealing with the aggravation of of placating censors, placating the Chinese government in 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 a sort of the effort of generating as much box office as possible in China, that risk reward calculus just didn't make sense anymore. So the aggravation, if you look at movies like Mulan or you look at Chloe Zhao involved with the Eternals or Shang-Chi, which had Chinese thematics in it, um, there's lots of movies that had been sort of going overboard in regards to placating the Chinese government, yet they simply weren't getting in the market or just weren't generating great box office returns. So I think now you look at studios going, well, wait a minute, is this all worth it anymore? So I like to say that doing the right thing and capitalism can actually coexist, and we need more people to realize that. On that note, Chris, do you see this kind of being a sustainable trend in Hollywood, not needing the China market, or is that due to the lockdowns? How do you see this playing out? I think uh, Hollywood has found a way to monetize premium and I would call super premium content, which is studio level movies around the world in a much more efficient way. So the monetization and the efficiency to monetize has created better revenues and better profits for the studios. So quite frankly, China is not needed as much in the equation anymore. And there are actually studios now that are greenlighting films with a zero in the China column. Interesting story from NTD China and Focus's Tiffany Meyer there. And South Korea and the United States said they fired eight surface-to-surface missiles early on Monday. That's in response to a barrage of short-range ballistic missiles launched by North Korea on Sunday. South Korea's new president vowed to take a tougher stance against North Korea, and early Monday may have been a glimpse of that approach. South Korea and the U.S. fired eight surface-to-surface missiles, a joint military exercise that was in response to the barrage of missiles launched by the North just a day earlier. South Korea's military was cited by the country's Yonhap News Agency as saying its actions demonstrate, quote, the capability and readiness to carry out a precision strike against North Korea. The South Korean president, Yoon Suk-yul, who took office last month, has agreed with the U.S. to upgrade joint military drills and their combined deterrence posture. At a memorial event on Monday, he said the North posed a threat to regional and world peace. North Korea's nuclear and missile threats are getting sophisticated. It fired various ballistic missiles yesterday. North Korea's nuclear and missile programs are reaching the level that threaten not only the peace of the Korean peninsula, but also in Northeast Asia and the world. North Korea has conducted a flurry of missile launches this year, but Sunday's short-range ballistic missiles were probably its largest single test to date. Washington and Seoul officials also recently warned that Pyongyang appeared ready to resume nuclear weapons tests for the first time since 2017. Last month, the U.S. called for more U.N. sanctions on North Korea, but China and Russia vetoed the suggestion. And in the U.K., British Prime Minister Boris Johnson will not be forced out of office. He has survived a vote of no confidence. Johnson's fellow Conservatives voted 211 to 148 to keep him as both the head of the party and Prime Minister. 180 votes would have been required to kick him out. A group of discontented lawmakers in Johnson's party started the failed movement to remove him. Johnson has come under fire for parties thrown at the Prime Minister's residence while Britain was under lockdown due to COVID-19. The party's rules forbid another challenge to his leadership for another year. And coming up with gas prices on the rise, one German woman finds a creative solution by switching from her car to a horse-drawn carriage for her daily commute. Stay tuned for more here on NTD News. Amid a hike in gas prices, more people take a bike or public transport. But a stud farm owner in western Germany found the natural solution to save money. She switched from her SUV to her horse-drawn carriage to get to work. 
Here's NTD's Eddie Aitken with more. While politicians and businesses search for solutions to deal with petrol price hikes, citizens are coming up with their own creative ways to keep their costs down. For the stud farm owner near Frankfurt, the answer has been to change her mode of transport. So before the Ukraine war, I filled up my car two to three times a month for 80 euros. And when I filled up the first time, I think, for 140 euros, then I said to myself, wow, no, it can't go on like this. That was the deciding factor, yes. Instead of her SUV, she is now taking her horse-drawn carriage to get to work. Kirchner says she is now saving more than 200 pounds every month. The distance from her home to the farms, a bit more than 3.5 miles. The one-way journey takes her 10 to 15 minutes by car, 35 to 40 minutes by horse, and 60 minutes when she picks up the carriage. The reaction from locals have been mixed. The kindergarten is happy, the seniors are happy, and then of course there are people when I'm on the road with the carriage, then I take part in the traffic, and the carriage is a lot slower. And of course humanity is hectic, and uh, then some people are annoyed if they can't get past me fast enough. At her stud farm, she takes care of 10 of her own horses as well as 15 horses owned by other people. Kirchner is a horse trainer and has turned her hobby into a profession. She says she wants to see more opportunities for horse riders to participate in public life. It is not possible everywhere. I can't put a horse in a parking garage. It would be nice. It is associated with the Stone Age, but uh, it is actually the most ecological and beautiful means of transportation we have. And without horses, we wouldn't be where we are now. Fuel prices rose in the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and have remained high with wide-ranging sanctions still in place on Moscow, putting pressure on supply. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.